when I think about the question about how to be a good leader, first of all, you got to throw away the old playbook. It doesn't work. If you try to use the one leader at a time, I've got authority kind of, you know, voice versus storytelling. If you try to take that into the new game, into that new way of working, it's just not going to work. Welcome to the Bridge Breakthrough Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Taylor. Thanks for joining me for this episode. Every episode, I sit down and have a chat with an inspirational change leader from around the world. I hope this podcast provides insights, inspiration, and ideas that can support you to create change for yourself, your organization or community, and this beautiful world that we all share. In this episode, my colleague Abigail Croft sits down with the Honorable Henry DeCio Jr. to discuss with him his amazing journey from Three Rivers, California, the White House in Washington and beyond. Henry DeCio Jr. is a global ambassador for changemakers. He works as a leadership advisor, campaign and organizational strategist, keynote speaker, and a social sector executive. He has led businesses ranging from startups to large, complex organizations. In 2008, he was the COO for Barack Obama's presidential campaign and then served as deputy assistant in the White House. Following his time in Washington, Henry went on to write his first book, Campaign Inc., and then went on to join Ashoka, where he further developed his philosophy about leadership and went on to lead the global Everyone's a Changemaker movement. Henry has a new book out at the end of March, Changemaker Playbook, The New Physics of Leadership in a World of Explosive Change. This episode, is a wonderful conversation that touches on the breadth and humanity of Henry's amazing story. How that along the way, he has discovered that the script has changed for what is required for leaders of today, and how he believes that everyone is a change maker for a better tomorrow. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So welcome. Welcome to the Bridge Breakthrough podcast, Henry. I am so excited to get to have an hour with you my morning, your evening. So one of the things we do, uh, because it's such a key practice for us at Bridge, is before we dive into our conversation, which I'm sure will be rich and interesting and varied, is we check in. So I'm just going to ask you to check in with me this morning. And you know the drill, you know Bridge quite well, but the two questions I'm going to ask you to start are, how are you? And how are you coming into this podcast today? Well, I'm great. I'm energized. Um, I'm, uh, I think if I had to describe, if I had to describe that energy, it would be hope and changeful. Nice. Nice. And I am coming in energized, inspired. I was doing some prep, going back over some of your key messages, and I'm just delighted to be here with you. And it's my last day before maternity leave, so... I am going out on a high, I think. <laughs> so, congratulations. Thank you so much. There's so much I would love us to explore, but what feels really important for me before we dive into kind of some of the amazing experiences you've got and exploring your book and your kind of leadership philosophy is to just share with our listeners a little bit about you as a human being. So will you just tell us a little bit about who you are and maybe your journey to this point in 2021 sure i um well i you know i 
had this interesting growing up experience. It was kind of a kind of out of a Mark Twain book. I um, when I was probably about seven seven years old, maybe eight years old, my family moved from Los Angeles area to Three Rivers, which is a really small community, two thousand people. If you go there today, it has hasn't changed. It's got three rivers. It sort of spills into a lake. So I did a lot of water skiing, did a lot of fishing, did a lot of swimming, um, a lot of hiking. And we had a school. I had the same like 10 kids in my class all the way from, you know, third grade all the way to eighth grade. And um, most, mostly the same kids year after year. And a lot of, you know, also a lot of playing in the, you know, the ball field at, uh, in the middle of town, just that kind of stuff. It was hot uh -huh. in the summer, it was cold in the winter, skiing, all that. And um, I, but I knew that, I, I remember when I was young, uh, probably about 11 years old, started this, I saw my first reality TV show and it was called the uh, Watergate, Watergate Hearings. It was about this guy named Richard Nixon who was president of the United States and he was going through <laughs> some trouble. And I saw this parade of government people coming on in front of the, we had a judge, we had our own Judge Judy, his name was Judge Sirica, and I you know, was fascinated by this process of our government sort of having a breakdown, and it came on my TV every day in the middle of the day when I was too hot to go outside. And I watched the Watergate hearings for whatever, however long that was, a couple of weeks. But you know, the White House, Abby, back then was so far away in California in a rural town, three channels, but I always looked at that White House on when it came on in the news every night and I thought, you know, I'm gonna be there someday. I didn't, it wasn't an aspiration. It, it, was, it was a weird sort of like, I'm gonna be there. And, like a knowing. Uh, and took, yeah, yeah. And I took a very long road to get there. I went through college. I went to UC Santa Barbara, it was a beach town, loved it. And then started the political powerhouse of UC Santa Barbara. I got a political science degree, and, <laughs> and then uh, and then I uh, and then I started out as a actually I fell into well, I thought I was going to be a rock and roll uh, saxophone player. That was a shock to my parents. I won't talk about that, but I <laughs> spent a year on that, and then uh, that was a failed venture, my first failed venture. But I, it was a good one for me. And then I started working as a, a labor organizer. Um, for 15 years, uh, like a community labor organizer, not even workplaces, but I would, I would organize communities of workers, mm. uh, raising a profile around government, public workers, and city, county, uh, mm. federal. Anyways, we started electing our own to become into the capitals, whether it's city, city hall or to state capital. So I got back 15, sort of 10, 10, 15 years on, started getting back to my roots, the political roots that I had. And I took a year off and I went to the Kennedy School at Harvard, got my master's degree. And then I just started on this whole new journey and, uh, and you know, and led me into the world of Obama and then and beyond into change making. And, and actually, when I think of you and I think of our opportunities to spend time together, if I was to say, when I think of Henry DeCio, what do I think of? The phrase that comes up for me is everyone is a change maker. So tell me a little bit about that kind of framing concept of your life, your work, your contribution. Well, I think I didn't know it until late, later that I grew up a change maker. I had all these experiences, you know, outside of the classroom. And, um, and I have a whole idea of, you know, what the change maker education looks like for the small e. But the real discovery came for me in the Obama campaign. Mm. And... And it was, um, I didn't have the word change maker yet, 
you know, I had the hope and change makers around me, but I didn't have that word really by itself or meaning to it. But there was a moment in the campaign when we had, um, so we grew up silo, you know, when you, we can announces and six weeks later, we're opening up our headquarters on the 11th floor of a, of a downtown high rise in Chicago. And, you know, so we don't know each other. We've been on email or something, but, you know, suddenly these people, strangers spill into this new blank space. There's nothing on the walls. Yeah. Uh, you got computers coming out of boxes, but we're still scrambling to get our servers up. Yeah. We've got, you know, checks coming in the mail and we don't, we're still opening our bank accounts. And we moved, we came into this environment of rapid change immediately. We had to try to catch up to the demand. You know, how do we hire? How do we get money? All those things. And you build it siloed, right? One, you know, one person gets the, you build the airplane in mid-flight, someone gets the fuselage, someone gets the wheel, someone gets the cabin, you know, that whole thing, the, the, the cockpit. And you get sort of these, these silos in place and you start, you know, you start building up the different uh, functions of the work. And um, where the change maker thing came from was, um, was essentially that in those early days of chaos, when we're all in our kind of bubbles trying to get things going, we got three pieces of guidance from the candidate. Build it from the bottom up, respect everyone, and no drama. And what I realized is that we really ultimately, I, I had a conversation late in the campaign with David Gergen, who was a, he worked for four presidents. He's on CNN all the time. He was my professor at Harvard and he had come to, to the camp to visit. And I had, you know, just went out with him and he said, what was the secret to your success? What has been the secret to your success? We hadn't won yet. And I said, you know, it's the people. It really was born from those three principles, but it was the people. And I described them as, um, innovative mind, service heart, entrepreneurial spirit, and collaborative outlook. And he said, oh, you hired leaders. And I realized uh, in that moment, that's what we, we had really built in everyone, a leader organization over time. Yeah. And that's what we became. And the change maker thing kind of grew out of that. But then I, then I went on and worked with an organization called Ashoka, which was really deep into this work and had the name for it that I didn't really have at the time. Yeah, lovely. And I know when Scott does these interviews, when he asks people to talk about their life, he talks about the key chapters. And I think there are a couple of key chapters I'm really keen to explore with you in this conversation. Sure. So there is obviously, as per Scott's introduction, the Obama chapter and that pivotal moment and everything that you learned from that. And then I am really keen to kind of also go into the Ashoka chapter and kind of what you learned leaving the White House and kind of what social entrepreneurship can teach us about these concepts of creating change and everyone a leader and then where you find yourself now with your new book coming out so the Obama campaign being COO for that I mean I imagine it was an extraordinary experience how has it shaped your thoughts your beliefs what are the key things you took from that chapter of your life it's not what you would expect. You know, I think a lot of people think we were, we were innovative for our use of social media and technology. And, but I, I really think what I discovered was, was more around humanity, around people, around the people I worked with, the people we engaged with, you know, the voting universe. You know, I think the big takeaway for me, Abby, was um, we moved from that. We, we, you know, we, we did grow up silent and hierarchical. We, it was the only way to catch up. 
it's, you know what we all know, but um, very soon after, in, the, in about a few months, we got to some calm and then things started picking up for us. Events started getting, came at us faster. You know, the, the, you have a year to build up for the first race in Iowa, mm. uh, the Iowa caucus, but then, you know, you get another race and then another race and suddenly you have an elections, you know, every week. So the runway got smaller. Uh, from election to election, the pressure, the white hot, that that white hot spotlight, you know, that's trained on the campaign, that that causes pressure. Uh, there, you're always a you know a moment away from a crisis, and so when you get into a crisis, that's a thing. And the other thing that happened to us was um, we built a community. First, a campaign to build a community on a platform called MyBarackObama.com, and so suddenly our stakeholders were not at the precinct office. They they were right around us. So there was a very fine line between internal and external. Yeah. And so problems just started picking up. Change was, you know, we couldn't, we, the, the, the problems were outpacing solutions. That one liter at a time system wasn't really working for us anymore. And we had to open up and let the whole organ, you know, let everyone in the organization step into their leadership. And when we did, the big takeaway for me was, that people in the lower and middle rungs of the organization, they didn't work in, they didn't have meetings to get things done. They didn't sort of work department by department. They literally worked across those old silo boundaries yeah. to, bring, to bring people together at, around a problem or opportunity. And for me, that was the big takeaway was that you can, it keeps hierarchy, of course, on some level, you have to have management uh, to, we didn't go become flat, but this idea of everyone leading in every moment, the, the, the shift from one to the other, the revelations uh, that came from that were life-changing for me. Mm. And so obviously, I mean, I'm, I'm hearing you talk about being in this incredible vehicle, this momentum, working with this candidate who went on to be, you know, I think a generationally defining leader of our time, but I love the fact that it's everybody's a leader. So I feel quite compelled to ask you, you know, knowing that Bridge works in leadership development, what is your sense of great leadership? What makes an individual at whatever level they're operating at a great leader? You know, I think the, the key is that um, you first have to see that you have to see that you have to step into that moment and make a decision in that moment, how you're going to position your leadership, how you're going to use it. Sometimes that's an act of stepping forward. Sometimes it's an act of stepping back, depending on the situation, letting someone else come forward. I think the, the, the two things. One is um, that old view of leadership that we all have, one leader at a time, you know, uh, somebody's got to be in charge, that person is the leader. You know, that old leadership that comes from siloed hierarchical thinking uh, is polar opposite from the kind of leadership in this new everyone needs system that we kind of transitioned into. Mm. And when I think about the physics, they're totally flipped. In the old system, one person big, everyone else small. In the new system, everyone has to step into their bigness. In that old system, um, you form, uh, you solve problems by team, by department. In the new system, you form them by teams. You cross those silos. Uh, in the old system, you had um, information was given out on a need-to-know basis. In the new system, you have to give out information for everyone because everyone has to see the big picture and step into their leadership. No one can be passive in the new system. 
um, permission-based, you know, Henry, can I open an office? Henry, can I? In the new system, it was about trust, about people do, acting within the system in a, in a way that's responsible, that is good for the mission, but also looks for opportunities. These are polar opposite physics. And so when I think about the question about how to be a good leader, first of all, you got to throw away the old playbook. It doesn't work. If you try to use the one leader at a time, I've got authority kind of, you know, voice versus storytelling. If you try to take that into the new game, into that new way of working, it's just not going to work. So yeah. I think it's it starts with just sort of um, tearing down those walls in your mind about what leadership is, just rethinking leadership in this new world where everyone has the capacity to lead. I love that. And, and I've heard you use the metaphor of, of, of going on to a, a football pitch or a soccer pitch, depending on which side of the ocean you're from and it being yeah. a different game. And if you try and play the old game, you're going to lose. And I've kind of really heard you kind of use that metaphor as part of this paradigm shift that you, yes. you talk to us about, which I think is fascinating. <laughs> Permission to yeah. trust really captivates my attention for some reason. We say a little bit more about in the new game, the shift that that is, yeah, and how we do uh, it. Hard. It's very hard. I mean, for me, it was. It's easier for me now. I think at the time, I just was. Things were happening fast for us, so I didn't. I didn't notice all these changes. Like, didn't, didn't we didn't have a staffing and say we're now going to be everyone leads. It just yeah. we evolved into that. Again, we hired change makers. Change makers um, are, you know have take self permission to lead. And so we had that kind of an organization that was, was oriented to that already. But I think the, the idea of going from a permission-based to trust-based really came home when we were growing from, I guess about 16, Hillary was out of the race. And we were now gonna grow, we had in the first 16 months grown from, six, from zero to something like 2000 people. In wow. the last 16 weeks, we would go from uh, 2,000 to 6,000 people. And we would go from $40 million a month, which was the first 16 months, to $40 million, to $100 million in the last 16 weeks. That amount of growth, that, that amount of every, people coming into an everyone, you know, a leader system, for me, I didn't know what to do. And again, uh, as the rule maker, right, rule makers can't keep up with this kind of change, with yeah. this kind of leadership. So it wasn't about making more rules. It was about positioning our, you know, our team all across the organization to bring these people in, to help people who are bringing them in, to make sure that everybody held this thing together. Here's the rules. Here's what we do. Let's command, like, let's meet the expectations. Let's command our moment. But what I found was that we moved as we went through this that when everyone leads, everyone is a stakeholder. And when everyone is a stakeholder, everyone is a steward. We didn't have one piece of rogue activity in our campaign in the last days. Despite all the, the, you know, the, the, the number of people we were bringing in, um, and that's because the organization kind of shepherded itself all the way through to those last days. Mm. And I just can't help but feel there's so much we can learn from your experience of that, you know, leading that is the COO of that, or kind of the, I've heard you say the chief bigness officer. I've heard you already right. mentioned that. What was the human experience of that like for you? Because many of us have learned in the old game about the need to be in control and leadership is about being in control. And with that level of kind of exponential growth and momentum, I'm imagining at times you felt not in control. 
And that's quite a big shift, right? How did that feel for you? How did you navigate that as the leader of this huge momentum? I thought I was going to lose the election for my candidate. <laughs> Honestly, I went to work for about two weeks every day. And I thought, how are we going to do this? How are we going to hold this thing together? We were known for our, you know, not only for being innovative, for, but for also for being disciplined, a very disciplined campaign. Because his fourth piece of guidance, by the way, in the early days was to me was to run it like a business. And so, um, so we were, you know, we were going to grow to these, you know, unimaginable dimensions and no one else, I don't think there was very many people were thinking about this piece of the, of the puzzle for us, which is how do we, which is how do we do this? Again, ultimately I had to just say, okay, we're going to have to figure out how to position ourselves around this change and help people through it and help people lead through it rather than tell them how to do it. Mm. And it just, it worked. I mean, now, you know, campaigns are very risk averse. We don't really, this whole idea of everyone a leader, that wasn't going to fly with me in the first days. So um, <laughs> this was a very difficult thing for me. And when I go to organizations and talk about this, you know, it's the very, I know what they're thinking because I went through yeah. it too. How are we going to do this and hold this thing together? And so if you were to boil down that extraordinary experience into kind of one piece of advice to not be in the way of, but in, in support of this change, what would you offer? Yeah, you know, you talk about that football player. For me, it's that, foot, that gladiator sport with the big pads and everything goes out in the field and sees that the game is different. There's not these two goalposts, there's the nets and, you know, they're chasing after a different football and they, they don't have the, you know, they have flowing hair and light clothing. There's, there are, my football player has three choices. One, you can be frozen in place and you don't know what to do. The second is you can double down what you know, which means tackling those people to the ground and, you know, becoming a worrying figure. Or you can take off that, get into the new game, take off that gear, work new muscles, all those things. My advice always to that football player, if I could say two things to that football player, the first would be uh, your old team will lose this new game. So you're going to have to get, you're going to have to get new people and you're going to have to bring your people along differently. And my second piece of advice would be your old mindset might just be the thing that keeps your team from getting into this new game. Mm. So I think it's about seeing the, the new landscape and, and just getting into it uh, that, and, and learning. It's a learning. Yeah. Game. I'm hearing kind of an openness to change, like growth mindset a willingness to kind of jump into the unknown in many ways, but with trust, with like a belief in humanity. And kind of when you were talking about your story, watching those early kind of Nixon kind of TV clips, there was a knowing in you. Has that stayed with you? I think I knew, I don't know. I mean, I just knew that I wanted to serve. I had a passion. My passion at a young age became politics. And I got involved in student government and things like that and, and leadership. I mean, I was always fascinated by the idea of leadership. So I think I did in that way, I did follow my passion. Um, look, we could have lost that election and I would not have worked in the White House. Things are the way they are. But when I was an organizer, even in Texas, you know, uh, in the mid nineties or in, in uh, Oklahoma, I didn't, I wasn't really on the path to get to the White House. So I kind of never was chasing that. And I, yeah. I, 
And I, and I didn't even, you know, even as I started toward um, more into politics, I wasn't really chasing that. It showed up in my story. Yeah. Very lucky that way. And but what what is the driver then? So, I mean, as you will know, with all the work you do with organizations around the world, increasingly there is this desire to connect to a purpose or a meaning to galvanize humans around something. And, you know, leaders are often kind of quoted as having a sort of a North Star or an end goal or a purpose or a key belief. Do you have one? What's guided you on your journey? You know, I think it was that we had tapped something that, you know, it wasn't so much what we aspired to in the Obama campaign. We tapped something that existed in society. And that's that same thing I was saying to David Bergen. It's innovate, that D, the new DNA, innovative mind, service heart, entrepreneurial spirit, and collaborative outlook. What I found was that we saw, at, you know, we didn't say this, but we saw change makers. We saw a universe of change makers and we built our organization to accommodate that. My big discovery after I left the Obama campaign and after I left the White House was that um, after five years in this bubble uh, and reconnecting with the world, and now you know, we had two kids and you know, we were a family and there was things going on that were very different for us. But one of the things that really st stood out for me was I recognized that the world looked more like my Obama 2.0 that, that everyone a leader system versus the Obama 1.0. That's the world I left. The world I left was siloed, hierarchical. You know, we all got that job and, you know, stayed with that job, repeat the skills. Now we were in a world where we had rising individual agency combined with these tools at our fingertips, right? We have these phones now. I can be a broadcaster in a moment. I can be a communicator. I can, uh, I have all the tools of check. I have my printing press. I have all the tools of change at my fingertips that were once available to a few. And we have the democratization of leadership and society movements and so forth. And so what you have now is a world that is much more in everyone a leader world. Um, we are commanding our lives uh, quite skillfully now with the tools and connecting together. And, uh, and again, my big discovery is that the old playbook of one leader at a time, all the things that we've known for generations, the playbook that's been passed on for generations and generations doesn't work in this new world because the physics are polar opposite. And it, it makes me think, you know, as organizations, what in whatever field they're in are kind of looking to adapt this kind of question of, is it what we want outwards or is it what's going on out there inwards is kind of really interesting. And what I hear you talk about is the world out there is changing. And we need to think about how we adapt to it, how we respond to it. So it's that kind of that fluidity going with the change. And, and one of the things that I think is so valuable in your work is you kind of you have these key questions that you pose to leaders and organizations for them to think about. And one that always captures me is one of the most important KPIs for a leader to be thinking about is how many of my people are change makers. Do you want to say a little bit more about that before we move into the next chapter? Yeah, no, it's, it's true. The, I mean, again, the, the number one thing, again, going back to my campaign headquarters laboratory, was um, you would have thought when we went from that one leader at a time system to everyone leading in every moment that we would have wrestled those change forces to the ground that were kind of coming at us. Yeah. 
In fact, the opposite was true. Because if you think about it, the physics are leaders, leaders make change. It's just what they do. And if everything you change changes everything and everyone isn't doing it, you're in a system of explosive omnidirectional change, which is again, the polar opposite of the repetitive faster change from the old game, from our siloed days, right? Yeah. So if you come into the world, if you understand that the world now, we are in an everyone leading in every moment world. We have these tools at our fingertips, you know, all kinds of changes exploding from every single person all over the place then you have to be able to command that system uh, very differently. And so I always just say, if you are, and if you understand, if you see the same thing I do, innovative mind, service heart, entrepreneurial spirit, collaborative outlook. If you're a teacher and you see change makers coming in your classroom and not students, how would you build that classroom differently? If you're a CEO and you see customer, you see change makers coming into your store and not customers, how would you build that store differently? If you're a government leader and you see change makers and not taxpayers, how would you engage differently? And what we did was we built an organization that could uh, connect with that, with that universe of, of change makers. And I think it is the number one issue. If you, if you don't hire change makers, if your people don't see themselves as change makers, then they cannot navigate this fast changing universe that mm. we're in now. So I do think it is the number one KPI for any organization. How many of our people are change makers? Yeah. How many people are able to move beyond being given permission to do things and to lead themselves and yeah. to lead for something bigger based on all the change going on out there and how we yeah. need to be responding? Yeah. So there's an agility. There's a, yeah, it's, it is fascinating and your kind of paradigm shift and the, and, and the way you frame it feels so helpful for me. And I know the leaders that we get to kind of pass your messages on to, it's just, people are sort of desperate, I think, for how do we do this? How do we change? So yeah. I want to talk about your book um, and, you know, kind of the way you've introduced some of those concepts to the world, the new physics of leadership, as you talk about it. But before that, there's another chapter and you left the White House and you yeah. went to Ashoka, who is an incredible organization that's uh, very important to Bridge and Bridge Institute and has partnered with us. I'd just love you to tell us a little bit about that transition and what you learned from that. It was clumsy. Uh, I didn't actually know, if, I didn't really uh, have a place to go to after I left the White House. I, I had been with the, in the White House for two and a half years. I loved it. I mean, it was amazing. But I had this pull. I was really being pulled out of the White House. And what was really pulling me was this discovery from my campaign laboratory, these new physics that I had discovered and these polar opposite physics and all those things. And I had decided that I wanted to, to be in that leadership game. Again, this was a passion from my youth, right? Mm. How do I change? How do I help people? How do I change the leadership paradigm? And that was what was pulling me out with absolutely no plan. So um, I didn't know where I was going to go with that. I spent a few months, I was writing my first book, Campaigning, which was, a, which was my story of the campaign. And I, I was going around town talking to people saying, you know, this is my interest. And I got the, you know, the funniest responses to my aspirations. But I, I remember meeting, I was introduced to a gentleman named Bill Drayton, who'd been, he had founded this organization called Ashoka Innovators for the Public. 
he was bringing the idea of a, a, his own idea called social entrepreneurship. It was, you know, the idea that people can bring their talents to work for the good, uh, for the public good. And, um, and he was changing the landscape. And I remember uh, I was so happy to meet him. It wasn't about a job interview. I was just going to meet him. And I, I said, I want to talk to you about everyone, you know, everyone, the leader and went through my whole story. And then after that, he listened patiently and he said, well, I'd like to talk to you about everyone, a change maker. Oh, I don't know what that <laughs> change maker is, but I like that. Yeah. And I remember thinking, boy, uh, you know, I finally had a word that I could put to that innovative mind, service, heart, entrepreneurial spirit, collaborative outlook. And then I got to meet the world's leading social entrepreneurs that uh, Ashoka sources every year and brings into the world in their own way. And they became, now I not only had this, these, these new ideas and now uh, uh, the sense of these new physics, but now I had the archetypes for playing in the new game. And I spent seven years uh, lead, helping lead the Everyone a Changemaker movement, but alongside uh, about 4,000 of the world's leading social entrepreneurs and getting to study them and work with them was unbelievable. Yeah, sounds extraordinary. And, and, and there's so much I would love to dive into about that, but if you were to come back up and kind of boil it down to kind of the key things that you learn over those seven years from being around those people and in that movement, what what would you share? And I guess what's relevant outside of social entrepreneurship for our listeners working in corporate systems? What's the key sure. takeaways? Well, I mean, what I learned from social entrepreneurs is the playbook for the new game. And essentially, if you, if you really boil it down, it's empathy. They have a very, very well-developed empathy muscles and they can see they can see across the spectrum and sense where the societal need is, and uh, and they also have a, this ability to understand how their change affects someone over here, right? And so they see with the, the with a much wider scope. Um, the second thing is uh, they have the ability, very much like from my, what I learned from my campaign days, they have this ability to tear down walls and bring two or more sides together that wouldn't otherwise connect. This was, again, my discovery from the Obama days. It wasn't the technology. It was the ability to tear down walls and bring two or more sides together. That's when innovation happens. So they have that, uh, they have that in, their, in their toolbox. Uh, the third thing is they, they, understand, they see change makers. So they do have this view of everyone a leader. They understand what everybody brings to any situation in any moment. And they, 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 they're able to harness that. And they put those capacities and talents to work for the good of all. Uh, so they're trusted, uh, they're trusted actors in, in their communities uh, and in the spaces that they work. Yeah. It's so inspiring. And, and it, you know, when you think about the state of the world today and how many people are focusing on our differences and our separateness, and yet how much it feels like we need to focus on our similarities and our humanity and our togetherness, it just strikes me that there's so much that we need to learn from organizations who are constructed to be a force for good, you know, mm -hmm. to tap into human potential, to change the rules. So the combination of the two has now brought you to the point where you've got your new book coming out, I believe at the end of March. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? 
tell me whatever you want to tell me about your new book and what you're hoping to do with it. Well, it's, it was, uh, so one thing is, Abby, one of the things I do is I take a sabbatical every seven years. It's a step away from what I do, takes six or seven months. Uh, it's never planned, so it's never funded. So I got to work that piece out for the next one. But, um, but I, oftentimes I write during that period. And I don't know, so I had, it was very similar. I, le I left the campaign in 20, or White House in 2011, took six or seven months off wrote campaigning, did some things that I wouldn't otherwise be able to do. Same thing, I left Ashoka after seven years. I vlogged about 500,000 miles traveling all over the world. And so now I can coach a little team and do some things. I wrote the book and I wrote it because, um, so it is just the story of my journey from hope and change uh, to change making. And it's the discovery of the physics and it is these new game players. And the book really is just, sprinkled with these story after story. There are some familiar change makers in the book. You know, Michelle Obama's featured and some, you know, yeah. some folks like that. But there are change makers that you've never met that you will never forget after reading this book. And um, the stories are just ri are riveting. I'm just privileged to have been able to have worked with them. They were people in my lives and then they became characters in this book. I mean, they're so larger than life. They're literally characters in a story. Mm. I can't wait to read it. I'm really, mm. really looking forward to reading it. And one of the things, there's so much I notice I want to ask you, but one of the things that feels really important for us on the on the podcast is that it's also a space for you to share anything that's really important to you. So is mm -hmm. there anything I haven't asked you about or anything that feels really important in your world that you would like to share or mm. talk about or kind of pose as a question? Well, I do, you know, the question that has been driving me for some time uh, that, that I think would be one, one to also pose to the audience, and I'll partly uh, give an, my own sort of answer as I've probed this. If you know the game has changed from one leader at a time to everyone leading in every moment, and we know that we're going into millennia now, from, from millennia of repetition into millennia of change making, how do we prepare our young people differently for this world? And that was a that was a question that I you know that I had for myself as as a as a parent of two boys young boys when we were going through this journey and I started looking at one of the things I started doing now because remember our our systems institutions mindsets the old game you know built for the old game don't work in the new game and on some level you know I'm I'm not being critical of education because I'm an opponent of education but on some level it was kind of built as an assembly line to everyone a vocation. And at the end, you're supposed to have a skill and take that skill inside four walls for life. And now, but we know that kids going into kindergarten, 65% of job types don't exist when they graduate. So how do you prepare kids differently for this new world of explosive change? And I started looking at the stories of my social entrepreneurs, my change makers in Ashoka. I looked at historical figures like, uh, you know, Florence Nightingale and Abraham Lincoln and folks like that. And what I found was a, a little bit of a roadmap for how to prepare young people for this new game. First, empathy between years one and seven, like modeled by adults. Help them learn, build that empathy muscle, make empathy a thing, give them experiences that will help them appreciate empathy and develop it. Second, in those, period, those years between seven and 12, they get their passion and they learn around that passion. And there's so much we can add into their learning as around that passion and they, they, they develop the ability for self-learning, self-motivation, 
even if you're teaching your child soccer because they're interested in that, you can whip out that iPhone, have them do an interview at the end of their practice, show them, uh, you know, show them that little speech they did on, on Apple TV. There's so many things we can bring into it, math, all those things. Then in the teen years, it is, uh, it is about taking your idea, putting a team around your idea and working together to make that happen. Uh, that gets you into a team of teams mindset, not that functional teams mindset. And then the last thing is leading to learn, leave your zip code, leave your comfort zone, whatever that is, uh, and have a, have a learning moment. And if you build that into your young change makers, you will go a long ways toward getting them into this new game. Um, I mean, as a mom of young children, deeply passionate about you know the change that I think our world requires, you are speaking in a way that's truly inspiring to me. And I love the fact that you've chunked it up into kind of at the different ages, what's helpful. Maybe that's your next playbook, you know, what, what children need, how the education system needs to evolve. I would certainly be interested in hearing more about it. Um, mm. Henry, it is so inspiring getting to talk to you. And one of the things Scott always asks at the end of his interviews is kind of having navigated your story growing up, Three Rivers, small town, mm. knowing ultimately you'd spend some time at the White House and then everything that's come after that, the amazing learns about everyone's a leader, everyone's a change maker, the new game. As you end this time with us, what are the key pieces of advice or the top three things you'd like to leave our listeners with from all of your experience and wisdom? What I've learned is uh, empathy is the foundational skill for change making. You have to be a trusted player in this game and you have to use your change making responsibly yeah. or you're dangerous and you'll be pushed to the sidelines. Uh, the second thing um, I think is just see change makers. Uh, the new DNA, we all relate to this innovative mind, service heart, entrepreneurial spirit and collaborative outlook. Yeah. Then I think the last thing is just, um, is just making, start by making the generous choice in any situation and then put your change maker capacities to work around that choice. However, whatever need you're trying to meet. And then, and then I think what we find is that, I love this expression from Bill Drayton. He used to define, he didn't really define change making but you also always just sort of, sort of uh, link this con this idea, and it always sticks with me: love and respect in action. Love and respect in action. Mm -hmm. I like that. And what's next for you, Henry? Where do you go from here? What's your hope for the future? Well, you know, I. Um, I just, I feel like, look, I've taken the map up. I've, you know, I've kind of, every, I'm finishing up my, this became a longer sabbatical than I had thought, you know, because I, I wrote for, for much of it. But I think my drive is to really bring these ideas into the world. I think that you can take any problem right now, the thorniest of issues in society, which is where I want to be, and and uh, you know, I'll have leaders say, well, I, that change making is nice, but I've got this fire going on in my community or in my house or whatever it is. Once I get done with that, I'd like to really, really try that. For me, the playbook, change making is the fire extinguisher. If we can put these ideas to work on any major problem in society, 
we can fix this problem. And so that's, that's where I'm driven right now. Wonderful. I have no doubt it will be an ongoingly inspirational journey and I wish you nothing but the best of luck with it all and look forward to continuing to work with you. Thank you so much, my friend. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Abby. Thanks again for tuning in to the Bridge Breakthrough Podcast and hope you enjoyed the conversation with Abigail Croft and Henry DeCio Jr. You can find Henry's new book, Changemaker Playbook, The New Physics of Leadership in a World of Explosive Change, online at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Bookshop, or in your local bookstore soon. In North America, you'll be able to get your hands on it at the end of March, and in Europe, on the 20th of July. If you'd like to know more about Bridge and the change we're creating around the world, please find us online at www.bridge-partnership.com. And finally, if you enjoyed this conversation, please check out the other episodes on Spotify, iTunes Podcast, and Stitcher. Give us a review if you'd like, and please share it with anyone you feel could benefit from these conversations with global change makers. Thanks again for your support. We'll see you next episode.